Let's continue our worship by looking at the scripture that we read a few moments ago. Uh, Revelation chapter 20. And we'll begin at verse 11 with our study today. Revelation chapter 20, beginning at verse 11. A special thanks to Mark for preaching for me last week. Um, it was nice to be able to watch from home, to learn. I was greatly blessed by it. Uh, as I was sick, and you're preaching about Jesus healing physical sickness, you know, one day fully and finally. Anyway, it was an encouragement to me and my family. Uh, I do want you to know, church family, for those of you who've kind of put it together, um, I did have coronavirus, and I have been vaccinated. So I should be the safest person in this room today. I'm past the 10 days, <laughs> and everything should be fine. But if you don't want to shake my hand, it's fine. And I'm also scared to death that I'm going to cough and scare you. But look, the symptoms can persist past the 10 days, and it still not be contagious. So anyway, I see some of you looking at me very scarily. Um, I did not come last week because I did not want to spread anything. But I am here because I have served my time. <laughs> and I'm ready for life to move on. <laughs> and it's such an important aspect of life, too. I mean, what we do here is so important. Um, for those of you that are guests with us, I, I want to just make you aware that you're stepping in on a series of teaching uh, that we began several months ago in which we've been surveying the major doctrines of the Christian faith. We've called it foundations of faith. These things are not um, auxiliary, secondary. These are primary doctrines of the Scriptures. And we are literally coming to the end. The end. One of the most fundamental doctrines in all of the scriptures is frequently given the mysterious title eschatology. It just comes from a Greek word meaning last things, end things. Some have estimated that 20% of the Bible is eschatology. It is a significant feature of our Christian faith. And so we're going to take some time to look at the end. Initially, I had prepared to uh, deliver this in one message. But in light of the weight of what we're going to be discussing and the relative lack of time that I've given it over the last five years, we're actually going to spend the next two weeks on the text that Noah read for us earlier. We see that fundamentally, this is the foundation, if you will, that all in this room will spend eternity in one of two places. There are really only two destinies. The first we'll be discussing today is that destiny of condemnation unto the lake of fire. The second, which we will discuss next week, is God's commendation unto the new heavens and new earth. So these are our options. While the second one actually receives pretty regular attention, it is this first that may be uh, the least familiar to you, at least in the last 15 to 20 years. 
historian Martin Marty has written, hell has disappeared and no one has noticed. It has indeed disappeared. A recent Newsweek article said that today hell has become today's H word. (laughs) In other words, good people never say it because it's rude and impolite. Even Gordon Kaufman of the Harvard Divinity School, by the way, no bastion of conservatism, believes that this is a good trend. As he wrote, I don't think that there is any future for hell. So basically, the way that people look at it these days is that hell was a tool that Christians used to utilize to persuade people to join their number, to get them to do that which they want to do. But now they realize because of this enlightenment era in which we live and that which everyone knows so well that this can't possibly be true. And so Christianity has tried to adjust its course. It's tried to uh, recreate itself apart from any um, divine doctrine of damnation. Another journalist noted this tendency. And this is his rather sarcastic interpretation of our Christian faith. He says, for most of its history... Christianity has been an often violent and always oppressive religion, an ideology. Think crusades, torture, burnings at the stake, the enslavement of women to constantly repeated childbirth and undivorceable husbands, the warping of human sexuality, the use of fear of hell's torments as an instrument of control and the horrific results of its calumny against Judaism. Now, I interrupt here to say he's going to make the turn. He's going to say that now Christians know better. Now they've become a little more politically savvy. Uh, they've, they've upped their commercial game, if you will, and, and Grayling continues here. He says, nowadays, by contrast, Christianity specializes in soft focus mood music. Its threats of hell, its demand for poverty and chastity, its doctrine that only a few will be saved and the many damned have been shed, replaced by strummed guitars and saccharine smiles. It has reinvented itself so often and with such breathtaking hypocrisy in the interest of retaining its hold on the gullible that a medieval monk who woke today, like Woody Allen's sleeper, would not be able to recognize the faith that bears the same name as his own. And when you look around at what's often called Christian, Grayling may be onto something. Maybe not in churches like ours, but in popular Christendom, it at least seems that this particular doctrine has somehow been erased from the pages of Scripture. When was the last time you were listening to a Christian radio station and heard a message on hell? Despite, friends, our modern advances, we still see the doctrine of the eternal state as fundamental, as foundational, as non-optional. 
After all, isn't there something legitimately to fear here? I know that the concern is that some person like myself would be fear-mongering people and emotionally manipulating them into making some kind of a decision that uh, they in the long term wouldn't ultimately want to make. Uh, and I know that it would seem so doom and gloom, but I just would ask this question to any who would uh, question legitimate warnings against a place called hell or the lake of fire. Uh, do not some of our consequences, I mean, our actions have consequences, and are not some of those consequences bad? Do we not, in kindness and love to one another, legitimately warn each other of things? Do we not often say, like, hey, you probably shouldn't go down this road because there is a horrible end. Have you ever seen a sign that warned bridge out? Have you ever seen the warnings posted on cigarette cartons against cancer? Nobody says, fear-mongering. I can't believe they would do that. Why would anybody ever uh, like actually disclose like what could happen to someone? Like this is this is fear. You're architecting fear. No, look, there are legitimate things to fear. There are legitimate outcomes that we want to avoid. And so while we wouldn't want to play on people's emotions alone, surely we can make an appeal for the truth. What about spiritual matters? Matters of God, our souls, the afterlife. Is, there, is fear an appropriate motivator uh, for such matters? According to the text of Scripture, it seems to be so. As you, we make our way into the book of Revelation for the first time as a church family, now I would have you understand that this particular piece of literature uh, is immensely unique. If I say that 20% of the scriptures, by some estimates, are apocalyptic, or excuse me, by prophetic, in times, there is a narrower subsection of prophecy, of doctrine related to the end times, that fits under this unique genre titled apocalypse. Apocalypse. In fact, the word revelation in Greek is apocalypsis. It is apocalyptic literature. It means to actually disclose that which happens at the end. I want to differentiate prophecy from apocalyptic literature for a moment so you can understand how we can approach this particular text, because we're going to be in it for two weeks. General prophecy in the Bible is forewarning of certain outcomes. So basically what happens is that the text is speaking to a particular group of people in a particular point in time saying that if you don't repent, this will happen. Or if you do repent, that will happen. And normally there is either a bright or uh, a dismal future ahead. But Typically, prophetic literature doesn't deal with that which happens at the very end. It happens to deal with things that lead up to the end. 
If you read the book of Isaiah, for example, you'll find that a lot of what is forecasted there isn't talking about the very end. It's talking about stuff that's close to the end. Sometimes it's talking about things that could happen within the next first, I mean, one or two centuries of Israeli history. But apocalyptic literature always deals with ultimate end-time realities. Whether it be the book of Daniel or the book of Revelation, once you reach apocalyptic literature, it is assumed that there were no intervening real-world solutions to change the behavior. Basically, things are past the point of no return. And what the apocalypse is, is insight. It is revelation into how things will ultimately play out in God's economy. There are no remedies. This is just how it is. Adjust accordingly. And because of that, It uses a lot of prophetic imagery. Uh, There are symbols, indeed. There are uh, personifications. Uh, It is uh, an immensely immersive, visual, tactile uh, genre of literature. And when we're approaching it, I want you to understand that there is not always one-to-one correspondence between what you see on the page and what is actually being pointed to. Uh, Just as we use certain symbols to convey certain realities, so also they would do the same. Now, our biggest problem, mine included, with this particular genre of literature is that it assumes that you are immersed, one, in that particular historical context, because you'd easily pick up the symbols, and it assumes that you're immersed in the Old Testament There are are more references in the book of Revelation to the Old Testament than any other book in the Bible per capita. And so you may think, oh yeah, I think I know what this this beast thing that it's talking about. But you you don't know unless you've actually read the book of Daniel. I mean, it is assuming a lot. But I want you to know that the general feel is that maybe something of impressionistic art (laughs) Uh, you got to think, John is describing for us things, certain realities that he himself has never seen before and that we ourselves have never seen before, and he's using the best that human language can do to describe what he has witnessed. And so we just do our best to understand what we can. Point being, you cannot exhaust every line and word in this because some things just aren't that clear, but I'll tell you this. There's enough clarity for us to know, in the end, what these two destinies are ultimately like. Today, we focus on the first destiny, condemnation unto the lake of fire. To to keep this organized, I'm just going to show you through chapter 20, verse 11 to verse 15, the judge the judged, and the judgment. That's probably the simplest way for us to follow John's vision here. The judge, the judged, and the judgment. Notice the judge with me in verse 11. It says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, and from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. 
So here's the initial scene. If you've been reading through the book of Revelation up to this point, you'll understand that the millennium has ended. And what we have here is truly the beginning of the end. Or you could say it this way, the end of the beginning. (laughs) If the book of eternity falls into two volumes, uh, the first volume is the created world as we understand it right now. The second volume begins in chapter 21, verse 1, and will continue to eternity future. So we're at the end of the beginning of that first volume, or you could call it the beginning of the end, right where these two things meet. And right here at this point, John is seeing something that is very familiar in the book of Revelation. It says that he saw a throne. And what's so fascinating is that the word throne actually appears some almost 50 times in the book. This isn't the first time that he's seen a throne. But this time it is different. This time this particular seat is absent of all of its usual trappings. We've seen in times past where there's choirs of angels and there's 24 elders and they're all singing praise to him. And now all there is is this elevated seat. Throne terminology is is powerful. It has been uh, cross-culturally through the millennia. Uh, We think of it as a place of power. We we still even think of seats in these terms. We talk about the seat of power or a throne could refer to a whole monarchy. Uh, Sometimes we we talk about a chairperson, uh, that person who sits Uh, in control of a particular meeting. Uh, This is something that goes deep to the core of culture. It transcends uh, our value. Like what we're seeing here is is a focal point of power, almighty judgment power. Now, because of our American upbringings, we think of a division of powers. We normally think of the judicial branch and the legislative branch, and the executive branch as being separate things. And it's a neat system. I like it. But in the ancient world, there was no division of powers. The throne was the place that you ruled, and the throne was the place that you judged. It was combined all into one What we see here is a focal point of the power that rules the universe. And so he sees not only a throne here, but he also sees it as being great and white. Its greatness, its size means that that it outshadowed all other thrones. Its whiteness, its lucidity, its clarity shows its purity. This would be a perfect place of powerful judgment. And who's sitting on this? It says, I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The text doesn't tell us exactly who this is in this particular place, but we know from reading in other parts in the book of Revelation, it is either God the Father and or our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, if you look uh, just ahead and chapters uh, 22, you'll find in just a few places that it is called the throne of God and the Lamb. Uh, Clearly, God himself is sitting on this. He is the one that is exercising this judgment here. And, And what is so fascinating is that in this particular scene, 
everything else flees away. Notice the text. It says, and him who was seated on it, and from his presence, earth and sky, that's a merism, talking about the totality of everything. Earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. This is even like picturing like the decreation of the universe. Right now, there is absolute nothingness except for God sitting on this throne prepared to judge. It reminds me of that science experiment that kids do when they break surface tension. You sprinkle the pepper on top of a bowl of water and you see it all sitting there and you stick your finger in it and nothing happens but put a little bit of soap on the end of your finger and what happens is it's as if the presence of God in this particular moment forces the the discohesion of everything in the universe he is the only one left and he is prepared to judge But not only do we see the judge, but the text introduces us to the judged. Look at verse 12. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. Now, pause here for a moment and just note, uh, who is standing before here? All those who have died. Again, you have to be aware of other passages in Scripture. Uh, Maybe the easiest place that you need to be aware of what's going on here is this very chapter. I don't have time to read it for you, but when you read earlier into uh, the book of, excuse me, chapter 20, uh, you find out that there already has been a resurrection for those who have life in Jesus. Uh, They have already been taken care of in a special way. Here, it seems that this is all those who have died outside of Christ. As evidenced by uh, the, the language that will be used at the end of the chapter to say that this one group was judged according to the books, plural. We'll find out about those in a moment. And another group was released from this judgment on account of their entrance into the book. The book of life. John is also being clear to let us know that of all these who were outside of Christ at this particular judgment, uh, that it was all of them great and small. There was no one so important that they were able to sidestep this judgment. There was no one so insignificant uh, that they didn't even need to show up. It says that all the dead, both great and small, were at this particular judgment. And they're standing before the throne. And notice, books were opened. Plural. And then keep reading. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. We'll talk more about this book of life in a moment. But first we need to know, what are these books? In what way are these people judged? Well, it says, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books, listen to this, according to what they had done. So what are they going to be judged for? Everything that they had ever done, every thought, every motive, every deed, it is here going to be brought out. 
Friends, this is an interesting scene, and one actually captured the uniqueness of this very moment well with this line, I love this, in the choir of life, it's easy to fake the words, but one day we will all sing solo before God. In the choir of life, it's easy to fake the words, but one day we will all sing solo before God. What will they hear when we sing that solo? No reverb, no backup, no soundtrack, no accompaniment. Our faltering voices will then proclaim everything we've ever done within the hearing of God's perfect pitch. The text answers that everything is recorded, all of their condemning works. This is where the the metaphors begin to become helpful. We think of literal books and you're like, oh, wow, I get, you're bringing out books. Books are just a metaphor for God's perfect memory. Everything has been recorded down to the, the tale. Uh, f- for all of you who are afraid of getting God on a bad day, <laughs> don't worry about it. He'll check the record. It's been recorded. He knows perfectly everything that we have ever done And it says that it will be judged. You will notice that no one standing at this particular judgment escapes its penalty except for those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Which clues me in on something. As much as some of us may think from time to time that it's all going to turn out okay. That maybe somehow our good will outweigh our bad, or we're not the worst person that we know. Uh, Actually, everyone here whose name is not written in the Lamb's Book of Life ends up in the category of condemned, and that is because this holy God judges according to a perfect standard. He is a perfect and holy God. He's prepared a perfect and holy place, and he will only allow those into it who have been made perfect. Jesus said it this way, Matthew 5, 48, therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. In the first epistle, uh, Peter wrote, like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Or we read this one in Galatians just a few weeks ago. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Galatians 3.10. Or James chapter 2 verse 10. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. This is God's pure, perfect standard, and he's going to compare everyone up to that, and anyone out of any alignment with that will be forever condemned. 
I could definitely see some in here today stealing themselves against the sobriety of this particular scene by objecting uh, that there has been plenty of good done in your life, and therefore you think that you may fare well at this particular judgment. But may I just kindly remind you that in any system, good works cannot undo rightful retribution for wrong. In any system. I just think about um, how many good deeds uh, an Osama bin Laden uh, could have committed in his lifetime. Like, would that have ever satisfied the American justice system? If he would have been a nice enough of a guy. You know, if you actually do the research, he's a fascinating guy because most of the people around him thought him to be a pretty good person. I mean, just uh, let the record show uh, that he was a frugal man, he was a caring father, he enjoyed taking his family on long shooting trips and picnics in the desert. Others described him as soft-spoken, possessing a mild-mannered demeanor. His passion in life was to avenge the oppressed, the killed, or otherwise harmed Muslims in the Middle East. He was also a huge advocate of ecological conservatism, calling for Americans to save humanity from harmful gases that threaten the world's destiny. But good deeds don't undo wrong ones. They don't. You still have to answer for breaking the divine standard. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? I mean, think about it. They're listing all these amazing, supernaturally empowered kind of things that they're doing. And what does the judge say? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. See, it's lawlessness because we create our own laws. We create our own system. We architect our own morality. And we can't even follow our own rules. For a fascinating insight into how that goes down, I would encourage you just to read the autobiography of Benjamin Franklin. The guy wrote his own rules, and he got to the end of his life, and he realized he couldn't even live up to his own rules. And yet we've been given the divine law of God. And this is what we've been called to live up to? How would anybody think that they're going to somehow escape this judgment? The judge, the judged, and the judgment. Notice verse 13. Here's how this verdict plays out. And the sea, it says, gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. They're all present at this judgment. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Notice, repeating it again, basis of their works. And then it says, 
that death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, things get confusing for some here because, like, you have these mentioning of this entity of death, Hades, and then the sea. Uh, this is where, again, the literary references will be helpful for you. Uh, in the actual mind of those who would have been reading this, especially those uh, of Israeli descent, they would have been thinking of the sea as that place from which every evil comes. You read the book of Job. What's in the sea? Leviathan, that great monster. Uh, you remember the great enemy of the Israelites as they were fleeing Pharaoh? It was the sea. And God himself was the one who conquered it on their behalf. Do you remember Genesis chapter 1? At the very beginning of creation, there's these dark, ominous forces, and so it seems, until God separates the sea from the land. Uh, when you look throughout the, the entire scriptures, uh, the sea is kind of like the symbolic place from which all evil comes. All evil, and then all death and Hades. The resident places of the judged dead. What we normally think of today as hell. It will all be combined. All will then be thrown into this final place, subsumed by this place called the lake of fire. Just in case you didn't know, this is different than hell. This is where hell ends up, thrown into this place of eternal torment, prepared for the devil and his angels. It's been mentioned already multiple times in the book of Revelation. It is a place of conscious and eternal suffering. Culture has attempted to defang uh, this particular place and this punishment I mean, medieval writers, uh, for example, gave it its own shade and nuance. I think of Dante, I think of Milton. But maybe in recent years, uh, just hell is actually uh, idolized as kind of this place where we can have this great party and get together. I remember as a kid, I used to love to read uh, Gary Larson on the far side. And those comics always had these what seem to be these great lines about what's going on in hell. As soon as you see this, you're, like, you're thinking like, oh, that doesn't seem so bad. I mean, think about like almost every 80s heavy metal band that sings about hell. They just make it sound like the party of the century. I think ACDC has four songs that sing all about hell and how great it is. And yet here, there is no companionship to be offered. Like what has been portrayed in this particular text is not anything to laugh about. There is nothing funny at all about what's going on here. I mean, when we read through the Scriptures and see what it says about this final state of those who are condemned apart from Christ, it characterizes it by darkness. Those in hell are bound hand and foot and thrown into outer darkness, Matthew 8, 22 and 25. By the way, that's from the lips of our Lord Jesus. 
fire often marks this place. God's judgment, Hebrews 10.27 says, is a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Uh, Revelation 14.10, those in hell drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and are tormented with fire and sulfur. I mean, some have tried to say, well, maybe this is some kind of a metaphor. (laughs) Maybe this is just a metaphor for a really bad time. Uh, friends, if, if fire even is some kind of symbolism, I, I don't know about you, but I, know, I think the way that symbols work is that the symbol normally is less than whatever the thing signified. I'm just thinking about this little ring on my finger right now. It's just a ring. What does it signify? It signifies something much better and bigger than a little old piece of gold. It's talking about lifelong relationship, eternal, I mean, this commitment that I have to my bride till the day that one of us die. <laughs> That's bigger than this. You ever see uh, on, a, on a, I mean, I just had to buy some chemicals for a, a pool recently, and I was looking at this muriatic acid, and what it has on the outside of it is just a little skull with the little crossbones on it. Just a little piece of skull and cross. What, what is that? It's just a symbol. But for what? The flesh burning off my hand if I actually pour that muriatic acid on it. John Piper said it this way, and I find it to be immensely helpful. He says, but aren't those just symbols? Isn't fire and brimstone just a symbol? I say, beware of that because it doesn't serve your purpose. Suppose fire is a symbol. Do people use symbols of horror because the reality is less horrible or more horrible than the symbols? I don't know of anyone who uses symbolic language for horrible realities when literal language would make it sound more horrible. Friends, whatever it is, it is suffering, it is eternal, it is long, it is horrible. It is banishment. It is banishment. Dante was right to say, abandon all hope, ye who enter here. It is a point of finality. Friends, if this sounds absolutely horrific, if you're thinking, you know what, I get why nobody preaches on hell because nobody wants to hear about it. I'm with you. I don't think anything challenges my faith to its very core as much as this particular doctrine. If I'm just being like really transparent with you for a moment. While I disagree with this brother's conclusions regarding this doctrine, I do agree with his sentiment. I'm reading here from from John Stott, and and this is what he says, and I, I think I agree with this aspect of what he's saying. I find the concept of eternal conscious punishment in hell intolerable. And do not understand how people can live with it without either cauterizing their feelings or cracking under the strain. But our emotions are a fluctuating, unreliable guide to truth. 
and must not be exalted to the place of supreme authority in determining it. As a committed evangelical, my question must be and is not what does my heart tell me, but what does God's word say? I'm not asking you today to listen to your heart. I'm asking you today to look at the text. What does it say? I don't have any words to describe this. I don't have any stories that can illustrate its finality. If it were not in God's word, I would not believe it. But this is the ultimate and irrevocable penalty for neglecting God's mercy in Jesus Christ. This is your destiny apart from Jesus. Frankly, friends, there are a lot of horrible things that I wish didn't exist. And just because I don't want them to be true doesn't mean that they aren't. Cancer comes to mind. (laughs) Coronavirus comes to mind. Pedophilia comes to mind. Murder comes to mind. Genocide. I just don't think that the sticking our head in the sand approach is really a good defense. This may be the destiny of all who reject Christ, who persist in their rebellion. But hear me well. The text is clear. It doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be. Some bypass this condemnation, and it does not happen on account of their works, but on account of the work of another. (laughs) See, friends, it would be easy for you to think, uh, listening to this, that, oh man, well, maybe since we're judged by our works, that this means that somehow this text may be teaching that uh, salvation is by works. No, 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 no. Let me be clear. Let me tell you what the text is teaching. Damnation is by works. You will be damned on account of your works, but you will be saved on account of the work of another. Because the text held out hope with this little line and said that there were books to be opened and there was a book to be opened. And it just briefly mentioned it, the book of life. But notice here, at the very end, as the final judgment sentence is pronounced, verse 15, we hear, If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now this is the good news. Because there is a way of escape. What the the text is referring us to is something that is elsewhere in the, the revelation called, here's the full title, the book of life of the Lamb who was slain, Revelation 13, 8. 
Another spot in Revelation gives its fuller title, the book of the life of the Lamb, Revelation 21, 27. What does it mean by the book of life? It is referring to that registry that would be kept in any city of its particular citizens. And so here we have a group of people whose names have been recorded, spared eternal judgment, will enjoy this commendation unto the new heavens and new earth for all of eternity on account of what? Their association with the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. This is the point of the book of Revelation. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. He discloses himself in this. And so as horrible as this is, he has already presented himself as the way of escape. All those who are allied with him, all of those who have confessed their faith in him and professed him as Lord and Savior, they escape this because he's the Lamb. He has satisfied God's eternal wrath in his own person as he entered humanity to become the lamb who would take away the sins of the world. Think about the Old Testament again. Remember that imagery in which there actually could be a substitute. Instead of them dying for their sin, someone else could die for their sin or something else, a lamb. Jesus would come as that. He would actually take God's wrath upon himself when he was crucified on the cross. He would fully die to pay for that penalty. And all of those who ultimately would profess their faith in him would then be rescued from said wrath. They would enjoy life eternal that is offered solely in him. There is a way of escape. And it's solely in Jesus. It's cleared for all eternity. That's why it's called the Lamb's Book of Life. Romans 8.1, we looked at it several weeks ago, makes this so clear. There is now therefore no, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. For it's my only appeal to you is that you would forsake your works, that you would be united to Christ in his work. Some of you are visiting, you've been here a few weeks. I think that you would come here because you would assume that this would be a place that would tell the truth. I'm telling you the truth. I'm not trying to scare you emotionally, manipulate you. I am trying to tell you the truth. The bridge is out on your current course of life. But Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. I saw a disturbing video a few weeks ago. It was, um, it was a TikTok video of, uh, of John Piper's son. His name's Abraham. He walked away from the faith um, when he was around 18. He had a brief stint in which he came back and tried to patch things up with his church. Uh, but then just decided that it was all fake. And so now he has a pretty popular uh, following on TikTok and makes a lot of funny videos. Um, 
but a regular butt of his jokes is his father's faith. It's Christianity. This is what he said in a recent one. Even the most abrasive fire and brimstone preacher doesn't really believe in a literal hell. If they allow themselves even a single banal luxury, they're proving they don't believe. How are you going to take your family to Outback after church while millions of people are burning alive? I think that's a fair accusation. What, what, what are, not just preachers, but people like you and me, what are we supposed to do with this? I thought hard about it ever since I saw Abraham's video. And um, I'm glad to have been wrestling through this text around the same time. I think what we need to remember in light of accusations like this is that what we truly think, feel, or believe isn't determined by any one particular moment of intensity, but by the course of our life. Friends, what you, what you really believe isn't determined by what you do in the next two hours. I don't care if you go to Outback or not. What you really believe is determined by the ultimate course of your life, those daily and weekly decisions that you make that show that you're pointed to one destiny or the other. We can't be emotionally at a fever pitch 100% of the time. I know plenty of good doctors who are concerned about the sick. And plenty of solid police officers who are concerned about crime. And their commitment to their values is displayed not in any particular moment, but in the trajectory of what they do day in, day out, week in, week out, where their life is ultimately headed. The biggest issues of life and eternity don't demand our emotional intensity, but our volitional trajectory. I'll say that again because this gets to the core of what this text is to do for us. The biggest issues of life and eternity don't demand our emotional intensity, but our volitional trajectory. Friends, where Christianity has gone wrong is trying to work up emotions all the time. I'm not as concerned about the emotion as I am the intention. Like, where are you headed? But frankly, I've been sick for a long time. I've had 10 days of misery. And I know that my emotions uh, can be turned on and off, but I could even watch at 2 o'clock in the morning 
Sarah McLaughlin singing about the SPCA and shed a tear. But despite the emotional intensity of that moment, I assure you, my volitional trajectory has not altered one bit since that infomercial. But when faced with ultimate realities, sometimes I am not even allowed the relief of tears. It's just that my life changes. I started reading this, this week, as a matter of fact, the narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass. If, if you've never read it, you'll remember that he's the escape slave who became a prominent activist and author, a leader in the abolitionist movement which sought to put an end to slavery before the Civil War. And his accounts and the accounts uh, of the atrocities that he suffered are just, they get under your skin, they're horrific. But what editors in the day noticed about Douglas in particular is that what he wrote rung of truth. Because he didn't sensationalize. He didn't try to prey upon people's emotions. He just stated the facts of his torture. But one actually wrote it this way at that particular time. He said, The coloring is chaste and subdued rather than extravagant or overwrought. Though full of the most burning eloquence, it is yet simple and unimpassioned. Its eloquence is the eloquence of truth. <laughs> Notice, Douglas didn't go for the emotions, but I want you to note the profound impact that it would have on those who would read it. One reviewer illustrated fully the emotional impact of this work upon her. She put, I have wept over the pages of Dickens' Oliver Twist. I have moistened with my tears whole chapters of Eugene Sue's Mysteries of Paris. But Douglas's history of the wrongs of the American slave brought not tears. No, tears refused me their comfort. Its horrible truths crowded in such quick succession and entered so deep into the chambers of my soul as to entirely close the relief valve I groaned in my agony of spirit. And so joined the abolitionist cause. For does the text arrest the agony of the spirit to adjust the trajectory of the life? That's what's going on here. And so the, the appeal goes out timelessly as we're warned of this ultimate destiny. If you are here today and you have not yet closed with Christ, adjust the trajectory. God in his mercy has put you in this place this day. And you have been living for yourself your entire life. And he would say, look, trust 
Trust that the Lord Jesus has paid for this. Trust that he has provided a life of righteousness through his finished work. Trust in him. Adjust the trajectory. And then I would say, continue that way. Continue down that path. Continue with Christ. If you have trusted in him and you have repented of your sin, you need to be baptized and publicly identify with him. And then you need to belong to a church and you need to continue to leverage truth and to love others in and outside of Christ and to share the gospel and personal word and through gathered corporate witness. You know, every time we come together, we're proclaiming once more that life can be found in Jesus. Death is found everywhere else. You know that when actually we partake of communion, we are communicating to all those who are visiting that some belong to this group of Christ. Some have benefited from his broken body. Some have benefited from his shed blood. And by saying that some of them should not partake of this, we're saying that they're outside of that, but they can be inside of that. I remember... When the trajectory of my life changed, it was right around September the 12th, 2001. (laughs) It took me about 24 days to comprehend 3,000 people plunging into eternity. And at the time, I was trying to write uh, a paper for my English professor, teacher in high school. And it was the classic, right? What are you going to do with your life? And at the particular time, I was really thinking... Man, six figures a year being an architect would be sweet. And then 3,000 people just. I thought, what the heck am I doing? What, What am I living for? For me, at that particular time and juncture, it just seemed that what I'm doing now was the only way to do that. Since then, I've learned better. I joke around and say I got tricked into ministry. I thought that was the only way to live in light of eternity. But now I know better. Friends, you don't have to be doing what I'm doing, but this is what I am pleading for you. Live in light of eternity. This matters. And what we do daily, week in, week out, as a church family, committed to raising up generations of God-glorifying Christ followers, this matters. giving, keep serving, keep testifying to the grace that is found in the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world. This isn't to scare you, this is to sustain you. This is why we do what we do. If you're here today and you fear, you don't have to. Christ is life. Christ is life. How do you close? The only way I know how is to pray. I want to pray for our church family that they would continue in obedience to our Lord as we proclaim this message of escape. I want to pray for those of you who have yet to repent of your sin and respond to Christ. And then, 
we're going to sing. And we're going to sing about our only hope, which is in Christ. (laughs) Our only hope in life and in death. We will cling to him once more as a congregation to be suited to extend him through this week to come. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you have graciously shown us our destiny apart from Jesus. Or this matters, I know it does. You warned us over and over and over again in your word. And I don't understand it and I don't, I don't fully get it, but it's what you said and I believe what you said is true. And so I pray now, Lord, for those who are here who have yet to respond to you, who have yet to turn from their sin and rebellion and trust in Christ, I pray that they would do it today. Please work in their heart. And for those who have, oh, Father, invigorate them or with the reality of their rescue in Christ, or assure them that even though their works may fall short, Christ's work on their behalf is sufficient, and keep them mobilized and engaged in this daily and weekly effort to proclaim the good news to those who will hear it. Or pray that there would be good fruit that comes from this church as we hold to this foundational doctrine of the faith. Lord, help us stay faithful to continue to testify of the goodness and glory of Christ until He overcomes. And may there be much good fruit from our faithful, consistent, intentional, regular witness. And we ask all these things knowing that you, Christ, are our only hope in life and death. Amen.